0: Hello, I'm Alfred Bendixson, Executive Director of the American Literature Association. I want to thank you all for being here and participating in the first American Literature Association Experiment in Digital Technology, specifically a recorded Zoom session in which a group of scholars who represent the diversity of our profession will talk briefly about the state of our profession in, what do we call it, interesting times, amazing times, troubled times, uncertainty. When we started putting this together, we were in the midst of a pandemic. By the time we reached this point, we not only have the pandemic to deal with, but serious and significant demonstrations for social justice and political justice, uh, all sparked by the murder of George Floyd and that, and these are very uh, challenging, provocative, and um, sometimes exciting times. I'm going to speak briefly in my capacity as uh, Executive Director of the American Literature Association, and I wanna note uh, some of the issues raised for the future of all academic conferences and scholarly meetings. Um, as a teacher, I'm moving towards the end of my career. I'm retired twice. I'm an emeritus professor at both Cal State Los Angeles and Texas A&M. I've been currently enjoying the sixth of what will be a seven-year term at uh, Princeton University where I've been teaching American literature and science fiction and graphic narrative and having a very good time in the world of the privilege. And privilege is nice. Um, in spite of that, I've had some of the same, same anxieties dealing with Zoom teaching as you have. And the major issue for me in the face, in terms of the question we're raised, is that we live in an age of uncertainty. I will not know for another month or so whether I'll be teaching online or in normal classrooms. Uh, when we return to classes at Princeton in September. And frankly, not knowing is hard, and not knowing about many things is the new normal, and is likely to be for a long, long time. Even before the pandemic, even before everything else is going on, the study of the humanities was imperiled, enrollments were dropping nationwide, there were difficulties and challenges, that we need to face. The pandemic added new problems uh, to the way, and part of it was a difficulty of planning. The American Literature Association sponsors a couple of short, smaller uh, symposium each year. We have one in February. or return from it. Um, and uh, we were had done the planning for our May, uh, some, uh, Conference, a large conference expecting about a thousand people. And we spent months not knowing whether that would be possible to hold. When we reached the point when it was clear that we couldn't hold it, I called the hotel in early March and said, We just can't do this. I'd been in contact with them before about the situation. And their response was, Well, you owe us a cancellation fee, which, by the way, was a little bit over a quarter of a million dollars which by the way I'm personally liable for um, and what, uh, ha, ha, what you need to know that was, it was part really a ploy to get us to reschedule the conference with them as soon as possible and maintain contacts. They did not agree to a cancellation until the state of California basically told them to close down so in May 20th we announced the cancellation of of the contract. We are still waiting several months later for them to return our $10,000 deposit. I'm, that it's, the check will be in the mail soon. I've been told that for a while now. The o- ongoing problems in the next year or so have to do with the nature of conferences and whether conferences will be possible if tr- it's not possible. And travel has been difficult anyway. It's not clear if people will be able to travel safely and securely for a while. I know that conferences involve meeting spaces, which makes social distancing difficult or impossible. And conferences also can involve uh, other issues. We might be able to find rooms big enough for people out. But part of a conference is also the social gatherings and receptions, and a lot of important work gets done over discussions over meals, over coffee, sometimes over a drink and bar editors. Those events seem unlikely. What we've learned, and it took me 20 years to learn that, is in our smaller conferences, the best way to do a meal is a buffet. It's also much more expensive than a plated dinner, but it really was the best way to do it. Buffets are likely to disappear from all restaurants in America in the next couple of years, and that. And they won't be replaced by plated lunches at conference. The only way to provide food at a conference safely right now, it looks like will be a boxed lunch, which people gather and then move into spreaded areas. That's not the same thing, that's not a, cordial dinner or bring together. Keynotes will be harder. Um, Featured readings where we used to have bring in several hundred people to hear some rather remarkable uh, writers and scholars uh, speak. All that will be difficult. We have smaller conferences scheduled in Santa Fe in October in uh, Washington, D.C. in early February and Savannah in late February. I don't know if any of them will be held. I don't know what kinds of problems I will have in dealing with the hotel. In May, we will do our large conference again in Boston, which we've returned to for a number of years. I'm hopeful we will be able to do that conference. I'm not sure what it will look like. And these areas of uncertainty and this kind of academic world in which the kind of social intellectual gatherings can be important to scholars at every level of their uh, career is a significant issue. I want to end with one other issue. The nice people in uh, Savannah have guidelines for how to do a conference. One of the things is you don't invite anyone over the age of 60 because they are somewhat imperiled or at risk. That includes myself, maybe a couple other people in this group and that, but there is that, that uh, if that is a real issue, then it's a real issue. Um, we're dealing with a number of questions and one of the questions for me is what will the American Literature Association do over the next couple of years until we know what we can do? and what kind of normal will we create in the short term. Thank you all. I'm going to now turn this over to our second speaker, Hubert Cook of Connecticut College. Hubert, the floor
1: is yours. Hello, um, I'm Hubert Cook. I'm an assistant professor at Connecticut College. I just finished um, my uh, second year of teaching. um and so uh, the the things that i say are 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 just going to be based on that perspective um so um thank you for this invitation to think through um what really is an excruciating history Um, we're witnessing how a pandemic has abruptly felled persons and disrupted daily life we're seeing how the pandemic has disproportionately affected poor communities and how it has disproportionately affected communities of color. We're also seeing how the extrajudicial killing of George Floyd, whom a police officer asphyxiated as others officers stood by, has led to uh, a, a has led people to rise up across the country to demand justice. Um, these events have also cast in high relief the need to confront the systemic anti-Black logic that sees Black life as insurgent. Um, What this pandemic has brought forward is how these moments are not new, but how they are a pinpoint node in a larger history. I found myself, for instance, thinking about Ida B. Wells during uh, during this pandemic, not only because she was just posthumously awarded the Pulitzer last month for her reports of U.S. lynching, but because she had experience with pandemics. Um, Wells was born in 1863 to two parents whom someone had enslaved. Her parents would live through enslavement only to lose their lives to the pandemic that struck their town in the late 1800s, Yellow Fever. Um, Wells, 16 at the time, would pretend that she was older in order to secure a teaching job that she would use to keep her family together and to support her siblings and I've just thought of um, my students who've gone back home and have um, just been uh, had, had to deal with uh, the responsibilities of being back. Um, and we now know that yellow fever, for instance, was used as a justification for enslavement Early narratives suggested black people were less susceptible to the pandemic, and therefore could work in the fields. Wells would cover not just the inequalities that the pandemic laid bare, but she would also mount a formidable anti-lynching campaign that highlights or that highlighted uh, forms of anti-blackness. I I think of her and um, this need to return to narratives that expose um, a, a type of larger embeddedness in history um, for a current moment. Um, I think that for me personally, the, just the, the move to online teaching has emphasized how students are three-dimensional people uh, who have lives outside of our departments. And I was moved by the resilience with which students continued their work, some even with a greater degree of investment. In the spring, I was teaching an upper level English and Africana seminar called of how it feels to be black. The idea was for us to place the recent explosion of literary and cultural criticism that attends to the use of feelings, emotions, affects and sentience in literature in conversation with the work of black authors who have long demonstrated an investment in representing what it feels like to be a black person in the Americas. It's a class that met twice a week. Um, And when we went online, students shared how they had returned to being the caretakers in their homes of siblings and sometimes elderly relatives. Others shared how a parent had lost employment and that they were now working part time to help make uh, ends meet. I decided to continue the class with one synchronous weekly meeting and one asynchronous weekly meeting, wherein students met in smaller groups to continue the work um, of the class guided by discussion questions. And my hope was that um, the rework schedule would allow more flexibility. So I'm also thinking about how our, how our classes um, will change in the wake of this. For their final projects, I give students the option to produce a creative piece, song, dance, poetry that engaged with the course's text, for which they also wrote an accompanying critical explanation of that work. One student, uh, for instance, took poems from poet Cameron Awkward-Rich's 2019 collection, Dispatch, a collection that seems to think through the paradox of loving a world that in part wants to kill you. She interviewed essential workers in her family. She presented an awkward, rich poem to her family, and then she asked them to respond. Um, One of the family members she interviewed works in a hospital, and his job is to bring meals to his patients. He shared that, unlike the doctors and nurses who worked at the hospital, he, despite Uh, taking on similar risk was not made to feel essential. He did not feel his work was legible in representations of essential workers. He wondered aloud whether for him, essential was a euphemism for disposable. I share this story because it foregrounds the stakes of what Toni Morrison calls uh, doing language. The pandemic uh, may reorient our attention to work that has been happening in Black literary studies that imagines how we measure lives. I think of, again, of Cameron Awkward-Rich's call to rethink our modes of relation through what he calls uh, reading like a depressive transsexual, um, or Kevin Kwashi's worry about the prevalence of a general concept of Blackness that privileges public expressiveness and resistance and thereby hinders our capacity to see black aliveness. Or how Sadia Hartman has long asked us to think about uh, to what end and to whose benefit we circulate scenes of subjection. Her more recent work asks us to consider the limits of disciplinarity to make a person's legible. As I've thought about our moment where videos of police violence circulate, I've wondered how we might understand persons not through the violence Uh, through which they enter the archive, but uh, of their own accord, as C. Riley smoren suggests, through their own view. Hartman also wrestled with this issue in Venus in Two Acts. Um, I'm really thinking about what are the ethical practices that we need to mount uh, around representation, around circulation. I found myself thinking about Sammy Schock's work as it offers us a, a Black poetics a world-making futurity, or Derek Spires' work thinking through the ethical, relational forms of neighborliness he finds in Absalom Jones's and Richard Allen's account of the 1783 yellow fever pandemic in Philadelphia. And Spires urges, urges us to rethink citizenship, not as a common identity, but as a common set of practices. All this to say that as universities undertake the institutional work of radically rethinking budgets and where and to whom to allocate monies um, and, you know, consider the University of Minnesota's, Minnesota's decision to end this contract with the local police department, there has been an ongoing conversation in Black literary studies that asks us to think radically, not just about representation, but about the categories that structure it or as Fred Moten puts it, the condition for the release, not just of the prevailing worldview, but of the very idea of the worldview. This work, as Sean Crowley recently wrote, is about renunciation of the singular, the renunciation of the individual divisible being, the retreat into rather than away from the social. So um, those are just a few of the things that I've been thinking about. Um, Just looking forward to conversation. Thank you, Hubert. And our
0: next speaker is Kirk Kermit of Troy University. Kirk, take it away.
2: Thank you. The day my university announced we'd pivot to online learning as the pandemic closed our campuses, I was in Naples, Florida, tending to a 76 year old mother whose sternum had recently been broken by a newly licensed teenager who'd barreled his pickup into her front fender. I've been doing my best to enjoy my spring break, to get away from chair responsibilities and midterm grading, but suddenly as texts and emails began to pour in from faculty, I felt the panic of being far from home, a new sensation for me. I was suddenly sensitive to the vulnerability of mobility after years of admittedly privileged traveling. Would there be gas shortages? Would the state borders stay open? Would a random encounter grabbing a sandwich at some roadside stop and shop put my companion and I at risk? In the week that followed, the fragility of motion gave way to a heavier, more claustrophobic anxiety. As department chair, I was required to remain available online during work hours, but to come into the office only twice a week for three hours a shift, alternating with my secretary. In the five years since I had been transferred from Troy University's downtown Montgomery Night School to its main campus in rural Pike County, I don't think I'd spent much time at home other than to sleep or to shower. I spent most of my weekdays commuting to work, dashing back up Highway 231 to catch a yoga class, meeting friends for a drink or attending some kind of reading or recital. The workaholic in me felt stir-crazy from listening to online communities joke about around-the-clock snacking and binge-watching Netflix. The real sense of spun wheels and arrested motion set in at the end of March as events scheduled deeper into spring and early summer bit the dust. In the span of four hours one day, three conferences I'd saved up to attend disappeared. There was the ALA in San Diego in May, of course, but also my first Edith Wharton gathering in New York in June, and then July's biennial Hemingway Society gathering in um, Wyoming and Montana. Even worse, a dozen or so presentations scheduled to promote the centennial of F. Scott Fitzgerald's career were crossed off the calendar. In January, an Alabama publisher called New South Books, with a long commendable backlist of civil rights and social justice books, to its credit, had printed all of the Bells, the Montgomery stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, for which I had been asked to write the introduction. Part of my angle on this little known trio of stories about Fitzgerald's fictionalized version of his wife's hometown, was that Alabama had a great tourist opportunity due to exploit with the 100th birthday of the Jazz Age. Folks could come to Montgomery to visit the Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald Museum, where the couple lived briefly in the early 1930s, perhaps even stay in its newly opened Airbnb suites. More importantly, they could wander downtown and experience one of the most curious, most jarring, I argued, juxtapositions in Southern history. For the past two years, the dilapidated Pleasant Avenue where Fitzgerald courted Zelda Sayre has intersected with the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, the powerful lynching memorial that attorney Bryan Stevenson of Just Mercy fame opened in April 2018 through his advocacy organization, the Equal Justice Initiative. To my knowledge, no other place on earth allowed a visitor to stand at the now burned out lot that inspired the opening scene of Fitzgerald's comedy, The Ice Palace, and the walk a mere 20 feet to a wall where a passage from Baby Suggs' rhapsodic sermon in Toni Morrison's beloved exhorted African-American audiences to love your neck, put a hand on it, grace it, stroke it up, and hold it up, and all your inside parts, they'd just as soon slop for hogs. The incongruity of these two spaces dramatized the knotty contradictions of our literary history better than any exegesis I could imagine. I was all revved up, with a PowerPoint even, to evangel- evangelize on the moral necessity of literary travel, to appreciate the complexities of writing and place. So much so, my students began to think of me more as a tour director than a scholar. What few events were salvaged were now performed on my back porch, staring at a laptop precariously perched on my knees. I was afraid to move, scared to spill the machine. All of which is my way of saying that while literary travel seemed like an adventure I felt I'd earned after nearly 30 years of teaching at the same institution, it's now hard, only three months later to picture it without thinking of it as an indulgence, a selfish risk. And frankly, that worries me about the place of the arts in American daily life. Not our lives necessarily as teachers dedicated to this content, but in the lives of communities from which literature and related folk art sprang. As a sign of my preoccupation with literary tourism, I have for the past few years attempted to retool our English capstone into a course on arts management built mostly around the history of author homes. One week we study how the Zora Neale Hurston National Museum of Fine Arts in Eatonville, Florida began as a community effort to prevent the state from expanding Kennedy Boulevard into an Orlando bound freeway that would irrevocably alter this first black governed municipality in the country. Only discover in their success in establishing the town as a destination With a world class festival, the forces behind Hurston tourism had accomplished exactly that. Or we study how Red Cloud, Nebraska, has essentially bet the farm of its economic development on Willa Cather tourism with an ambitious redevelopment plan that presumes inexhaustible interest in my Antonia. My hope in assigning these case studies was to assure our majors that literature has value outside of the classroom. In the careers in arts management can be rewarding and creative. But even with states reopening this past month, arts programming seems far slower than most industries and fields to herald the return to normalcy. Just yesterday, it was announced that the Southern Festival of Books, the Deep South's premier publishing trade show, held annually in Nashville, would this October take place online. I'll travel all the way to my back porch to attend. We're a long way from understanding how the pandemic has changed travel in general, never mind the sort of pilgrimages we in literary studies have taken for granted since conferencing became a mainstay of the profession. Making concrete plans seems like a pipe dream, and even imagining hopping in the car for a day trip to the Margaret Mitchell House in Atlanta or Flannery O'Connor's Milledgeville seems freighted with consequences. As I write this today, Montgomery County, Alabama, where I and 225,000 others live, has surpassed the number of COVID-19 cases in Jefferson County and Birmingham, which triple our population. In the past 21 days, my modest 7,000 student campus has reported 23 positive cases after having skated through March and April with only two. Not surprisingly, In this reddest of red states, I see few masks when I step outside. The bar where my fellow faculty senate members used to happy hour keeps sending me emails. Taking it personally appears that I've yet to come back. It feels as if the definition of limbo is when one is afraid to make a move for fear of stirring the air. I've lost track of the number of times I've cracked the same joke about the 21st century's roaring 20s skipping straight over the Jazz Age redux to the new Great Depression. And in the meantime, and in the between time, we wait and wait and wait.
0: Thank you, Kirk. It's my pleasure next to introduce Karen Kilcup of the University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Karen?
3: Thank you, Alfred, for arranging this conversation and colleagues for joining it. I'm really looking forward to um, some conversation afterwards. I'm Karen Kilcup, as Alfred said, and I teach American Literature as well as in the Environmental and Sustainability Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies programs at UNC Greensboro. I'm going to uh, telescope in and out between macro and micro perspectives in my remarks, but I want to start by reflecting on leadership in these um, very painful times that I hope will offer us a window for real social transformation. My home institution is a federally designated minority serving institution approximately half the current incoming students are students of color, principally African-American. UNC Greensboro has been recognized as North Carolina's leader in social mobility and it's been nationally recognized for having a graduation rate for African-American students higher than that of its white students. University leadership has been really central in achieving these accomplishments. Following the horrific murder of George Floyd, our chancellor, Frank Gilliam, sent an eloquent, compassionate, and deeply moving message to the university community, and I want to share some of those remarks with you all. He urged that we solve our problems collaboratively. He explained the connections between long-term systemic inequalities and the ongoing protests before moving to specifics. The university has an open pantry, which provides food, clothing and hygiene products to students who cannot afford them. And a disproportionate number of the students who take advantage of that resource are students of color, particularly African-Americans. Frank spoke very personally as he discussed Floyd's killing and I'm quoting him now. This is personal. I am a black man. I have a black son. I went to high school in suburban Minneapolis. My parents lived there for 35 years. He told us how he was detained by local police in front of his parents' driveway. He worries about his 21 year old son living in Los Angeles. He expresses his sadness for the Floyd family. And finally he articulates his anger and ends by proposing important questions. Are we willing to buy into the notion that we have a shared fate regardless of race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, or party affiliation? Are people willing to change how institutions work in this country so that all people are treated fairly? His concluding remarks suggest optimism and faith and and they challenge us to do the necessary hard work to achieve uh, what he envisions as a better tomorrow. Frank's candor and vision is just inspiring to me. Um, they exemplify the kind of leadership that we need in academia, and um, his, his openness, his willingness to be intimate with students, faculty and staff, I think is quite remarkable. His emphasis on community helps re-energize my sense that our teaching and scholarship really matter. For privileged white faculty like myself, that means rejecting guilt and taking responsibility For learning more and contributing to that better tomorrow. And I think that right now, my clearest path to doing that is through teaching and my wonderful students. So, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the pandemic and how it's um, going to affect me going forward. I'm going to be teaching online in the fall. I did have the option to choose that, which was, was terrific, but it certainly complicated how I proceed and how I'm going to approach our students. Many of our mostly first-generation students will need extraordinary support. Many will be working in frontline jobs with potentially significant exposure to the coronavirus. Virtually all our students, um, even if they uh, study full-time, have at least part-time jobs. Many also have families, and many also commute on top of that. So it's, it's a really complex mix. I'm going to miss the ineffable element of face-to-face connections and the classroom intimacy and the generosity and frankness that my students uh, display in sharing their stories and working together. And I'm mourning those connections, I have to say. And I'm um, sorry to get a little emotional here, but um, I'm trying to figure out how I can encourage this classroom environment online. So, but the move online has opened some opportunities. I'm taking an eight-week summer course to learn about teaching online. I have started to reshape my assignments. <clears throat> I'm teaching uh, both at the graduate and undergraduate level, literature and the environment, and I'm reframing my traditional readings by juxtaposing, for example, Walden with contemporary journalism on self-quarantine and loss. I plan to foreground environmental justice as the course theme, and I'm going to include reporting on the murder of George Floyd. We'll look at the Central Park incident with Christian Cooper, as well as indigenous peoples' responses, both written and performed, to the Dakota Access Pipeline. Closer to home, we'll consider the environmental injustices endemic to water pollution from North Carolina's hog farming industry and Duke Energy's coal ash contamination of the water supply. Uh, Future teaching of American literature at UNC Greensboro. We've just begun implementing a new general education curriculum that will mean that the English department will have to reframe virtually every course we have if we want to retain students. Traditional American literature surveys may disappear. Secondly, even before the pandemic hit, the state had asked the university for enormous budget cuts. So we already know, knew before the pandemic that we were going to take an 8 to 10% hit, and I'm sure it will be much more substantial. And this follows, um, after the recession of 2008, many millions of dollars in budget cuts. So state support for um, second-tier public higher education In North Carolina has diminished substantially. Um, I would like to talk a little bit about uh, future study of American literature. Uh, My experience as ESQ editor confirms that academic journals are still under threat, and I think the pandemic will only increase those financial pressures. On the positive side, the submissions and their quality have been steady, I mean very, very good. So I encourage my contributors to speak in their scholarship to current issues and to make those connections really explicit. I want to just point to one example. Last year we published an essay by Gordon Frazier titled Distributed Agency, David Walker's Appeal, Black Readership and the Politics of Self-Deportation. in which he connected it to the crisis, uh, the border crisis um, uh, with Mexico. And this essay actually won the American Literature Society's 1921 prize in the Graduate Student, Contingent, Scholar, and Untenured Faculty category. So I was pleased to see that um, those contemporary connections were not a bar to recognition. Ultimately... I I feel as though we can advance American Literary Studies by explaining again and again, why and how what we do matters now. And I'm going to quote Frank again and say, we must come together and meet the challenges head on. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Karen. Our next speaker is Leslie Petty of Rhodes College, uh, who was also the organizer of the 2020 American Literature Association conference. Leslie,
4: thank you, Alfred. I'm so grateful to you and Kirk for organizing this session today. Um, you know, for many reasons, but one reason is that I get to be in touch with some of my dear friends and colleagues that you know that I'm missing in San Diego. Um as Alfred said, I was supposed to direct um, the conference. And as part of that conference, I was going to be part of a panel that many of us were going to be on about the current state of the profession when that state was very different. Um, and my plan then was to talk about some recent scholarly trends that I've noticed as I've been putting together these programs for large national conferences. And one of the things I have really noticed that, um, that Karen was speaking to earlier is that especially since the 2016 election, I think, there's been an increased urgency to make sense of our present moment, um, and, you know, whatever that means, through the analysis of literature. Um, not in any facile attempt to make text relevant, but through thoughtful original research questions that are opening up familiar text in new ways and making really meaningful connections. Um, and what I'd like to suggest today is that this urgency is bound to intensify in the coming months and years. Given the extraordinary moment we're in, a global pandemic, an economy in free fall, and widespread activism that seems a tipping point for racial justice in this country. Um, but however, I think we would all agree that it's not just the world that has been changed in these months, we have all been changed as well. In the early days of the quarantine, a friend sent me an article from the Chronicle of Higher Education by Aisha S. Ahmad, and the title was, Why You Should Ignore All That Coronavirus-Inspired Productivity Pressure. And Ahmad talked a lot about how we would be transformed as scholars and people in the coming months, and her words have really stuck with me. She wrote, quote, now more than ever, we must abandon the performative and embrace the authentic. Our essential mental shifts require humility and patience. Focus on real internal change. Let it change how you think and how you see the world, because the world is our work. And so may this tragedy tear down all our faulty assumptions and give us the courage of bold new ideas. In the intervening weeks, as we have witnessed sickness, death, and social conflict, wrought first by the pandemic and now also by the murder of George Floyd and others, I keep returning to this notion that scholars must now have the courage of bold new ideas. This is a lofty goal, and I know I'm not there yet, but I'd like briefly maybe to offer just a few concrete examples of some literature that's speaking to me in new ways, and perhaps will resonate differently with you as well. First, there are texts I know I will read differently going forward, perhaps most obviously those about epidemics and racial trauma. I'm very trying very hard to figure out how to get Katherine Porter's *Pale Horse, Pale Rider* on my fall syllabus, which I'm sure many of you know is a uh, novella about the uh, the flu epidemic. Um, but there are also, you know, as as Hubert mentioned, a lot of really interesting texts about the yellow fever epidemic. Um, one that comes to mind is *The Grand Seams, uh, which is a George Washington Cable novel from 1880. And that novel is also a kind of revealing meditation on racial tensions in Annabella, New Orleans. I also think that writers that deal head on with racial violence and white supremacy will continue to resonate, maybe even more so in the coming years. I just read in the New York Times that Lorraine Hansberry wrote an unfinished play based on Charles Chestnut's 1901 novel, The Marrow of Tradition, about a white supremacist attack on a black community in Wilmington, North Carolina. This novel spoke to Hansberry during the civil rights movement, and it's been a great deal to me in recent weeks. Not only was it the last novel that I taught this past semester, but it also, you know, just it, I keep returning to passages again and again. While Chestnut's novel isn't easily classifiable, it has a strong thread of naturalism in it. And now I have to confess to you all that in the past I have often dismissed naturalism because it feels um, too deterministic for me. Um, But Donald Peiser, unsurprisingly, offers a more nuanced view. He asserts that at the heart of naturalism is the belief that humans are, quote, more circumscribed than ordinarily assumed, end quote. But he doesn't go so far as to say that humans aren't agents. You know, I've been thinking that if anything can bring home how circumscribed we really are, even in the 21st century, how many forces there are outside our control, it is a pandemic. We have all felt vulnerable to infection, all feared losing loved ones or our own lives, all felt disoriented by the huge pause button that brought our world to a standstill in March. But there was no clear villain to blame. The threat was indiscriminate, kind of like the sea in Stephen Crane's The Open Boat." Unlike Crane's story, however, our own crisis has laid bare that even though the virus is a threat to us all, our chances of contracting and surviving it have a lot to do with race and class. The deep-seated racism that has led to African-Americans disproportionately affected by COVID-19 seemingly overwhelming force that has led to the brutal acts of racialized violence we've witnessed in recent weeks. I'm reminded of a scene in the Mirror of Tradition in which the white supremacists burned down the newly erected hospital for the African-American community. Chestnut describes it like this. The flames soon completed their work And this handsome structure, a promise of good things for the future of the city, lay smoldering in ruins, a melancholy witness to the fact that our boasted civilization is but a thin veneer, which cracks and scales off at the first impact of primal passions. Recent events have revealed many fissures in our own boasted civilization. and similar primal passions, the internal counterpart to the overwhelming outside forces have threatened to be our undoing. But as Pizer insists, we are not completely circumscribed. And I believe that both quarantining and protesting are testaments to our ability to wrest meaning and some control from even the most difficult circumstances. And I also believe our scholarship and creative work can play this role. And while I've offered just a few informal thoughts on where my head is, I expect that our field will soon develop in ways we can't even imagine. I'll end with another quote from the Ahmad essay in which she encourages academics to embrace a new normal in our thinking. On the other side of this shift, your wonderful, creative, resilient brain will be waiting for you. New ideas will emerge that would not have come to mind had you stayed in denial. Continue to embrace your mental shift. Have faith in the process. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Leslie. Our next next speaker is Oliver Scheiding from the University of Mainz in
5: Germany. Thanks for having me. Uh, My name is Oliver Scheiding and what I'm going to say now is very much influenced by my teaching of American literature here in Germany. So as Alfred has mentioned, I teach American literature in the Obama Institute of Transnational American Studies at the University of Mainz, Germany. My teaching and research focus um, and, uh, focuses on what I call a worlding approach. Together with my students, I explore processes of textual travel, mediation and translation that characterize the literatures of the Americas. In addition to this, and in collaboration with my colleagues, I co-founded the Obama Institute for Transnational American Studies in 2016. At the Obama Institute, we seek to examine the larger questions addressed during Obama's presidency, especially those that pertain to the challenges of democracies caused by recent social, economic, and political developments. Supported by our university, we have established a research platform on the topic of disruption and democracy in the Americas, challenges and potentials of transcultural and transnational formations. Given the increasingly complex relations between national governments and transnational spaces, we think it a pressing need to study the changing functions of democracy in societies undergoing rapid changes caused by forced migration, violent uh, and racial environments, health conditions, past and present injustice. In light of these challenging times and as one of the major concerns of our profession as literary and cultural critics, we welcome therefore Alfred Bendiksen's invitations to explore where the study and teaching of American literature is now and where it is likely to be headed. Alfred Bendiksen also asked us to suggest directions open to teachers and scholars of American literary culture. Given the present political drama, the question is, what literature should we read with our students in order to understand what we see is going on in our democracies? In the Time Magazine, the Native American writer, Tommy Orange has recently published a short article, What Novels Can Teach Us? Talking about the country's origin steeped in slave labor and genocidal bloodshed, he asks, what can literature do to maintain an American conversation? Orange concludes, quote, so if we can seem to find ways to talk in person or online, then and where, how do we talk? I think a novel is a kind of conversation. Both the writer and the reader bring their experience to the page. The reader's experience and ideas can be reshaped, challenged, changed. I know I'm a writer, so of course I think the answer is books. But I think reading books is a good place to start thinking about understanding people's stories you aren't familiar with, outside your comfort zone and experience," end quote. However, as a white scholar outside America, how can I teach people stories, avoiding the risk, as Nasrin Malik put it, that, quote, Racism becomes reduced to the U.S. version to its most traumatic transgressions. A tragedy for Americans, a break for everyone else who can fret about how singularly awful it is over there." Keeping this in mind, I have designed a graduate course on the 21st century short story that confronts my students with stories outside their comfort zone and experience, highlighting topics such as race, capitalism, violence, poverty, class, and injustice. The course's central theme borrows from Christina Sharpe's In the Wake on Blackness and Being, a book published by Duke University Press in 2016, and what she calls Wake Work. In her book, Sharpe traces the legacy of slavery in four chapters, the wake, the ship, the hold, and the weather. Together, these chapters metaphorically describe the cycle of black life. The chapter, The Hold, for instance, not only refers to the past and the middle passage that kept human beings in the hold of the ship, but also mirrors the present situation of Black life being now in the hold of an incarceration system, racial profiling, and police violence. For Sharp, to perform wake work means to explore, quote, forms of Black expressive culture, representing the paradoxes of Blackness within and after the legacies of slavery's denial of Black humanity, end quote. Following Orange's and Sharps' suggestions, the selection of stories made my students reconsider how we as readers outside America gaze at the black body or what calls call the spectacle of black death. Comparative impaired readings of earlier stories by Richard Wright or James Baldwin work well with Nana Kwame Achebrenia's Afrofuturism in his debut short story collection, Friday Black, which was published in 2019. Friday Black demonstrates that living in the wake means living in the history and present of terror as the ground of everyday Black expe- existence. Achi collection opens with Finkelstein 5, for instance, an account of murdered Black children decapitated by a white attacker with a chainsaw pretending to protect his own family against Black terror. In reference to the killer of Trayvon Martin, Edge Brenner creates the story Simmerland, a theme park for white people to act out brutal fantasies against people of color. When we call these stories timely, as some critics do, however, as my students' response show, Achebrenia's collection shakes up our comfort zone, forcing us to think about what it means to enact solidarity, and that fighting racism requires more than hashtags, especially when we think of the African migrants kept in the hold of of a European camp system. This black Mediterranean seems to have lost global support. As such, stories by Tommy Orange, Ace Brenya, Anki Jemison, Nilo Hopkinson, or Colson Whitehead remind us that reading people's stories can teach us how literature observes and mediates this unsurvival, forcing questions about change and continuity in the racial order to the forefront of American literary culture.
0: Thank you, Oliver. Our next speaker is Evie Shockley from Rutgers University. Evie?
6: Um, Thank you. It is a pleasure to be a part of this conversation. Um, I've been um, moved and um, really sort of am sitting with a lot of the things that uh, we've already heard uh, in this conversation. I'm... Struggling a little bit as I always do with these kinds of questions um, about what I want to say, um, as I said to Albert uh, in the lead up to to the afternoon, um, I was worried that with all the gloom and doom coming in, I would have nothing but a gloom and doom to to offer out, um, and I'll I'll try to to avoid that, but. Um, where I begin is with the, the course that I taught this spring semester. Um, I had planned it um, relatively uh, late in the, in the fall around a, an anthology that was newly released, um, Revisiting the Elegy in the Black Lives Matter Era by uh, edited by Tiffany Austin, Sequoia Maynard, Emily Ruth uh, Rutters, and Darlene Anita Scott. Um, It's a a wonderful collection of essays on um, elegies in the African American tradition, historically and contemporarily, um, interwoven with very contemporary poetry in um, the in the elegy tradition and I was excited when it came out to think of structuring a course around um, a formal sort of question that also allowed me to, um, to to sort of center several discussions on matters that I know matter to my students um, around Black Lives Matter, um, and around uh, the larger circumstances of, of uh, Black death, um, thinking out of the Afro-pessimistic tra- uh, Afro-pessimism tradition. Um, we, were a, we were reading poems by Phyllis Wheatley, um, and reading poems as contemporary as uh, work by Dennis Smith. The syllabus I put together, um, I ended up calling the course, I should say, Black Deaths, Black Lives, um, as a reminder to myself to include poems that would focus on the, the sort of the joys and the pleasures, um, the, the multiplicity uh, of, of black life. Uh, not just look at, the, at the, the various kinds of ends. But it seemed that the impact on the students, uh, and this is echoing some of the comments that we heard um, from Hubert Cook earlier, the impact on the students was um, a little bit different than what I had anticipated. Um, especially the Black students who I had really wanted to feel heard, um, began to feel as the semester and the pandemic, of course, unfolded um, really overwhelmed by the degree to which their schoolwork and their lives were reverberating, the conditions of their lives, Um, their families and communities, along with um, those of, other students of color and and more or less um, almost everyone here in New Jersey, which is one of the epicenters of the pandemic, um, were disproportionately impacted by COVID nineteen uh, sickness and um, and death. And so I began to really have to um, rearrange things on the syllabus, and uh, think about ways to um, mitigate the, the impact that the poems written sometimes almost a 100 years ago, sometimes written uh, 10 years ago, or five years ago, were having on the students. Um, my ability to empathize with them was only increased by the fact that I and in our department suffered um, the loss of Cheryl Wall, uh, professor of uh, African-American literature. And we went through the experience of grieving together in isolation. that experience really underscored the need that we already, I think intellectually, were, were clear about, but uh, we're feeling differently in an emotional sense uh, of, having, of needing to extend generosity to the students in the ways that we were uh, receiving their work, the expectations that we had for them, and the the ways that we were going to approach evaluation what i come away with from the semester is a kind of renewed optimism about really understanding how much what we teach can reach our students when we are teaching things that Speak to the conditions of their lives, Um, but also feeling very clear. I I am I am not teaching in the fall, so I'm not confronting this in a direct sense. But feeling very clear that one of the things that we'll need to think about is how directly we want to teach to the pandemic, to Black Lives Matter, um, and the the crises that many more of us are feeling even greater in this moment Um, but for some of our students have been um, very live very real and um, only amplified and magnified in this in this moment Um, so that trying to find a balance and thread that needle will be uh, one, of the, one of the challenges that I'll approach differently after this semester than I have in the past. Um, there's a lot more that I might want to try to contribute in the, the conversation after um, the last presentation. But I think I should stop there for now. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Evie. And our next speaker is Candace Wade from the University of California at Santa Barbara. Candace? Thank you, Alfred, always, if not for the pandemic. I would be
7: uh, speaking at the uh, American Literature uh, Symposia, and I would end up with uh, a sheet of books that I needed to read. And so I'm, I'm grateful to the American Literature Association because of the liveliness and because of those moments where people actually fish and cut bait at the meeting. Now here in California, I'm from North Alabama. I'm from the mountains of North Alabama. My current work is called Cannibal Capitalism. It includes Greensboro and the cone factories, uh, as well as uh, Demopolis and the plan uh, plantation Gazette, AKA the Montgomery advertiser now. All right, so um, when I left Alabama, I, I, I was part of the, Amer- of the, when I left Alabama, I was offered a job to be the organizer for the American Civil Liberties Union in Alabama. And I went North to study when studies, I went North to read, um, and yet my heart, My being is still in Appalachia. It's still in North Alabama. I'm there for five to six months of the year when we're not under COVID circumstances. That is my home. So today, I think I listened to all of you all. I think of Catherine Ann Porter, and I think of that line from Pale Horse, Pale Rider, and death is death, and for the dead, it has no attributes. What does it mean for us to be beyond adjectives. Um, uh, Writing on cannibal capitalism in a book that's titled Contains 1939, uh, there is the moment where one realizes that one, there are no adjectives for 1939 in the United States, uh, across Europe, for Poland, for Finland, for uh, for any, for anywhere. There are no adjectives. So, Um, I've been thinking about Hemingway and Huckleberry Finn and the way that Hemingway said that it was the beginning of all modern literature. And in the last um, weeks, I've been uh, thinking about what the modern means, what the postmodern means, what post-race means, what post-colonial could possibly mean. And the ways that time doesn't, doesn't always circle, it's more in a cycle and if we were in Polynesian time, Hawaiian time, uh, uh, the past would be the future uh, in ways of instructing us to go forward. So the books that I have a three course load because I'm director of undergraduate, chair of undergraduate studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I've taught seven courses this year because we are fielding an American Indian and Indigenous Studies program, and we are fielding it in a strong way. And we're fielding it a fair amount on Zoom. The most successful course I taught included Sadia Hartman. It included, uh, well, and it was a narrative that also included uh, all types of work on how one can feel empathy. The course is called Experimental Empathies, and it's the best course that I've ever experienced on Zoom uh, in terms of what the students are able to do and our method was to divide the course in half and have half the students come for one Zoom and half the students come for another Zoom. So that meant there were 15 people in each Zoom, but then I saw sadness in the faces of the students and they wanted to come to both Zooms. So this is the moment, if you're from Alabama, you say, everyone's welcome. Everyone's welcome. If you want to come to Zoom, you are welcome. You're so welcome. So we did a visual empathy exercise and the visual empathy uh, allowed us to, to show photographs and then people had written papers, but then people who had never seen the photographs before worked on photographs together. Uh, the two major photographs we have were of Eudora Welty's photographs from Mississippi in the 1930s, and then the students chose their own photographs, personal photographs, uh, or also some kind of historical photograph. There's a photograph that's meant to be a political statement about the AIDS epidemic, and it was a statement. But what the, the way the statement was made was a stain on the bed, a stain on the bed. All right, so. In thinking about what I've been teaching and what's significant to me, I reached down to get some books. And so uh, it's Terence Hayes, uh, American Sonnets for My Past and Future Assassin. That was already assigned. Tommy Orange was already assigned. uh, And they're there, right? So the Terence Hayes is, as you might be surprised that I'm reading so much poetry, uh, but poetry helps. In times of difficulty, in times of um, when hell opens its gaping mouth or maw, it it helps. Poetry helps, and these sonnets help. Uh, Emily Dickinson, in eighteen sixty-two, wrote a thousand of her poems. She wrote her poems because a white supremacist South was winning the war. Emily Dickinson wrote into her fascicles a thousand poems to try to stop destruction. Uh, Terence Hayes wrote this in the first hundred days uh, after the election in November of of 16. Right, so that, uh, you've likely all read the Hayes book, I'm likely the last person to it, but each sonnet, each ending line of the sonnet begins the next line of the sonnet. And then Terrence Hayes does this radical act, My Past and Future Assassins. Each poem is given the same title. They're all to that, and they name all and everyone um, in anticipation of the hell that's always been gaping its mouth open now for us to answer, answer in some way back. What else did Terrence Hayes do? His index, his index is an index of first lines, like Emily Dickinson's titles for her poems. And they are arranged in 14 line segments. And each of those first lines has formed a sonnet. Uh, After great pain, a formal feeling comes. And Terrence Hayes felt the formal feeling. And he's addressed it with the sonnet. So going forward quickly, I see Alfred giving me a time gesture. I know these well. Uh is just to say that Therese Mallow's book, Heartberries, Heartberries, uh, a memoir, is the best piece that I've read. It's also 2018. Uh, and it she is from the Seabird, uh, Seabird Island, uh, and speaks, uh, comes from a tradition of interior Salish. This is off the coast of British Columbia. And this is is the best memoir I've ever read. It, it goes, as the critics say, against everything. It goes against everything anybody would be taught in an MFA class. And it succeeds, it succeeds. And her goal was to write something that was unapologetic, and a memoir that did not defend the self in any way or imagine readers. And in this way, we're all imagined by this. Uh, The final piece that I want to speak to, I made it all the way up to 2020 with help. And this is Natalie Diaz's um, post-colonial love poem. It's not the or A. And like Terrence Hayes, uh, it's, fascinating because it has to have a subtitle that says poems or something like that to go into the plural all right so post-colonial love poem natalie diaz is mojave she's also gila river um identified and what's so great about this natalie diaz was a great basketball player she played in europe these are poems about basketball and they're also about love and they're either indigenized, they're not post-colonial, they're not quite decolonial, they're unapologetic uh pans to to love and parts of the body and basketball, but also love. Um, and what makes it it's interesting for its title, post-colonial love poem, uh, because it's just unapologetic. And I suggest this as a teaching form for this. Um, Zoom takes up two and a half hours of your imagination for every hour. This is what the people in the digital humanities tell me. Some people say it's because we're trying to view the exter- the space, the visual space behind us all. Other people say uh, that people are trying to imagine stories for the people who are in the rectangles and participating. Uh, meanwhile, I live in a family where we are on Zoom more than we are live. This is considered to be a negative statement on my part. We are on Zoom more than we are alive. Um, so in conclusion, uh, several of you have talked about what it means for people to be dependent on each other. And what's coming out of with my colleagues and the way we are talking and the way, and this includes people, all all of us who have been activists for our full lives is a declaration of interdependence, a declaration of how much we depend on each other and how the Zoom narrative only works in desperation. We don't have to fear that it will replace in-person teaching uh, but meanwhile, there are things that can happen. The projection of an image with everyone trying to imagine who the photographer is or what narrative is being told or what emotions that that image is trying to appeal to um, uh, as a narrative act. So I suggest Susan Sontag and I suggest Sadia Hartman uh, for for reading and doing work on visual empathy. And this really opens up a class and opens up a class that people cry when they leave the Zoom because they don't want to leave our rectangles. Um, Poetry has never been more important. And I think I may be through, Alfred. I, I, I think, Unapologetic memoir, like uh, colors like unapologetic yellow are extremely important. They light up your zoom rectangle. But uh, poetry, poetry because it it allows order and it allows thought and it allows intention and it allows activism. Uh, Hannah Arendt says that poetry, that writing might be passive and work is labor, and labor is work. But poetry, she places in the category of activism. And that's
6: because of the orality and the spoken word component. Thank you.
0: Thank you all. Uh, We've decided as a group to end with some final reflections. And the participants of this panel Will mention some observations about uh, the other speakers and or mention some books that now seem increasingly relevant to the times that we're in and the times we're moving to. I want to begin by observing how happy I am by the deep sense of humanity and compassion and understanding and awareness of community I've heard in each of your talks, and by the deep sense that we are part of a larger, um, part of a larger conversation, but part of larger communities, that we have different connections with our students at various moments, but we do have those connections and we've maintained them. And I've learned something from what you've said about, how you're approaching this world. I wanna mention three books to go that I think are now uh, crucial. The first is Victor Laval's Ballad of Black Tom, the major horror novel of the last few years. And I think one of the great novels about the Black Lives Matter movement, it's come out a few years ago, it's a rewriting of one of Lovecraft's worst novels. And, um, and and it's thoughtful on those treatments. The other two I want to mention uh, that are, are pandemic novels. One is by Justina Ireland, a remarkable African American uh, writer, whose Dread Nation book is about the zombie apocalypse. Only well, the, the zombie apocalypse starts during the battles of Gettysburg because Ireland understands what a civil war means. What happens of the Battle of Gettysburg is the dead troops rise up and they kill their comrades. And it goes on to deal with other issues involved, mostly through the words of a young girl whose role in the post-pandemic or ongoing pandemic zombie apocalypse is to go to school to learn how to defend white women from zombies and become a peculiar kind of warrior. It deals with pandemics explicitly. It deals with vaccines. It deals with other things there. And the final book, just to mention briefly, is Ling Ma's recent novel, Severance, one of our most thoughtful science fiction pandemic novels. And what happens there is not the COVID-19, but something called the fever. And what happens when the fever comes and it seems to strike almost everybody is people fall into a repetitive, repetitive pattern in which they do the most menial parts of their daily life over and over again, whether at home at work and they simply, they don't eat or attack or violate other people. They just go into an endless, meaningless, Uh, motion of a worthless existence. And it is one of the most remarkable and frightening variations on the pandemic novel. And there are books that are coming out now that help us think of all kinds of issues uh, along the way. And it's always good to have something to read. So that's uh, my part. And I will turn this over now to Hubert.
1: Yeah. Uh, um, one of the things that um, our, our conversation has brought forward to me is just um, the, the the type of um, the type of uncertainty that we're facing, um, not only with regard to um, what we teach, but how we might teach it. Um, I've been thinking. Uh, uh, I feel that a, a number of the texts that, that I teach are already a, a bit of a high wire act. <laughs> um, and I've, I've been wondering what that's like, what it would be like, for instance, to teach with a mask or what it would be uh, like uh, to teach um, some of the texts that I'm just used to thinking about in person um, through a screen, um, how one, uh, regulates that. Um, and so I kind of, I, when, uh, when Evie Shockley mentions the question of how directly do we want to teach the pandemic, um, or how directly do we want to teach, um, black lives matter. I'm also, I'm also thinking about the context, um, that we find ourselves in the, the sort of how, uh, we can, uh, Make that uh, work happen, uh, especially as students just seem to be um, really, uh, really taking the moment in and um, needing um, uh, some text that help us to uh, think through it. Um, I'm just going to mention a, a text that I've been uh, thinking through, and it. It's a. It's again. It's it's a Cameron Walker Rich's collection uh, Dispatch, uh, which came out at the end of last year, um, and Rich has um, just some beautiful poems um, that um, are, uh, that, you know, with with titles like Meditations and an Emergency, um, that um, are helping us uh, to think about the moment. I've just found it really, uh, really. Uh, refreshing especially because a lot of uh, my work is is based in the late 19th early 20th century and so to see um, uh, some some of the themes of the the nadir um, uh, reflected in our current moment but also to see uh, rich uh, or awkward rich um, pushing against um, uh, our our sense of uh, sound, images, and concepts um, is is just. Um, I, I've I've just found it really, uh, really powerful, and I've I've also just found uh, the 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 work as as its title might suggest, dispatch. I've I've just found it urgent. Um, so that's that's the piece I would recommend.
0: Thank you. Uh, Kirk?
2: Well, um, I guess the, you know, the observation that I would make, I think that uh, after listening to everybody is, uh, I've probably approached my pedagogy too much as an act of celebration um, in my career, just as a way of sort of, I think, encouraging students to uh, appreciate literature being in a uh, university where that's not necessarily the, the most uh, prominent program. Uh, but the thing that I've, I've really, I think, learned in the past few months in this conversation has is, is, uh, made me aware of is the need to think of pedagogy as a lamentation or as a mourning and our ability to, um, you know, to express our regrets and express our griefs through our teaching. There's three books that I think have kind of preoccupied me lately. Um, I suppose it's no surprise that as a Fitzgerald person that uh, I've been reading Grail Marcus's Under the Red, White and Blue, which I think is a very important um, study to for those who maybe think the time for Gatsby uh, has been worn out. Um, I think he does a marvelous job of uh, reminding us of the folk and and jazz and um, cultural roots of that story and does an exceptional job in my mind of kind of linking it to what in another book of his on uh, Bob Dylan, he once called that old weird America and taking it out of uh, sort of high culture and putting it back into the popular culture. It's got some middling reviews, I think, because people aren't necessarily clear on his strategy or organization, but I have enjoyed it just for the ability to ride along on a thought. And it's reminded me that no matter how often or how deep we think we know a novel, there's always new ways of rediscovering it. The novel that's probably given me the most comfort in the last few months is another non-surprise. It's probably The Plague by Camus, and I find myself going into it almost like scripture on a daily basis and kind of plucking out observations on behavior and trying to understand when I am getting my morning coffee at the uh, at the um, stop and shop, why when I'm in my mask, I get weird looks or get accused of being uh, an extremist. Uh, the other book I would really love for people to rediscover that I've been thinking about a lot lately is James Baldwin's final novel, Just Above My Head, and it's a novel that uh, is overlooked way too much, I think, and being in the South and being as um, a fan of popular music, it's a really um, wonderful novel, very spacious, expansive novel about the um, borderline between gospel and soul music. And uh, in some ways, it it uh, kind of treads into Sam Cook territory, if you know Sam Cook's story, but is not a, room on a clay, so that's very refreshing. But uh, it's always struck me that that novel has not gotten a lot of attention, but uh, I find it uh, to be very fascinating and to speak a lot uh, in the last two weeks, uh, in particular. Thank you. Thank you, Karen.
3: Yes, well, so much of what folks have said has really resonated for me. Um, I think first, I just wanna say how much I think about my students. Um, I think that was probably obvious from my remarks. Um, But I, I think for me most urgently right now is to meet them where they are and help them connect their academic lives with their personal lives to acknowledge that their feelings are okay and they need to be felt and need to be expressed. Anger, sadness, humility, kindness, you know, humor, pleasure, courage, the whole range um, to, to try to convey to them that they have agency in expressing those feelings. Um, and then I, I want to go to um, thinking about uh, what Evie was talking about, and Candice, I couldn't help but think about Audre Lorde's poetry is not a luxury, and I have to teach it this fall. I am reminded that I have to teach it. Apropos of that, this is a book I've been reading, Hyde Erdrich's Cell Traffic. She is um, a poet, Ojibwe poet, and um, I am Co-chairing a dissertation um, on Native American literature, and the student actually was the one who said you have to read this book. So I'm really grateful to her for leading me uh, to that. I'm also reminded that we have to read not just for work but for pleasure, and I'm reading a book called Brilliant, which is about it's basically a history of light. The Evolution of Artificial Light by Jane Brox, and another book that I would really recommend to you uh, by a writer whom I just admire so enormously, he's a deeply compassionate and uh, generous writer, is Dr. Atul Gawande, who is a Boston neurosurgeon. And in these times, it seems to me his book, "Being Mortal," the subtitle is "Medicine and What Matters in the End," is really profoundly important to me right now.
0: Thank you, um, Leslie.
4: Thanks, Alfred. Um, thanks to all of you. I've I've really um, enjoyed this last hour and a half, and and I've seen so many um, you know similar threads in many of our our talks. I think that, as Hubert said, we all we've all expressed this state of of, being, of tenuousness, right? Um, we're not sure what's coming, um, and but it also seems like every one of us recognizes and is invested in in how literature can help us navigate it. How it can help us come out on the other side, not just for us but for our students. Um, the kinds of works that we teach, the way we help them see it in new light. Um, one thing I think many of us have talked about implicitly, but not as much explicitly is how the, the line between the private and the public has collapsed for almost everyone. Right. I mean, since we're all in our homes doing our work,
6: mm-hmm.
4: um, I know for me, you know, having my children in the house has been a very, uh, wonderful and also very hard experience. Um, and so I think that too is a, a kind of, uh, I don't know, a kind of veil that has been rent back like that connection between our public and private lives that I hope going forward, we're able to, um, keep at the forefront. Right. And maybe try to reconcile those two spaces better. Um, I think as far as books go, um, I I mentioned the two, I I think the two texts that have been on my mind the most, uh, Charles Chestnut's The Mayor of Tradition, and also um, Porter's Pell Horse Pell Rider, but I will just recommend one novel um, that is about, explicitly about a pandemic, it's called The uh, Station Eleven, it's by Emily St. John Mandel, it came out a few years ago, Um, and when all of this started, I kept thinking about it, because this is a little bit of a spoiler, there's um, an airplane um, where all the, the folks have caught the, the illness and they've just left them on the plane because they didn't want it to spread any further. And so this airplane just haunts the background with all what everyone knows these bodies are on it. And I kept thinking about that with the cruise ships. I don't mean to get into this, but the parallels were, were really eerie. Um, but what's great about it is that it's, it's in a sort of dystopian moment after most of the population has been wiped out, but the main character, is in a traveling Shakespeare troupe. And so one of the things that resurfaces early is, you know, is art, is literature and how it kind of, you know, is an attempt to, to make connections among these disparate communities that have popped up. And anyway, it's kind of a fascinating read that has resonated with me lately. So I leave you with that. It's, it's more for pleasure than teaching maybe, but it's interesting. Thanks all of you.
5: Thank you, Leslie. Oliver? Uh, thank you so much again for all these, you know, wonderful um, comments, uh, and I take a, a lot, you know, from these conversations. Um, and uh, I just wanted to mention two things. First of all, I think what we can see from all and learn from all these comments is that we also have a chance to rethink uh, literature uh, in these, as Alfred has pointed out, you know, challenging times um, or painful times. Um, because what I have learned, for instance, um, from um, from all of you is, for instance that we begin to rediscover certain forms. Uh, for instance, as Leslie pointed out, she's rediscovering naturalism. Uh, or for instance, we are also, let me say, rereading again elegies, you know, which I think is just wonderful, or sonnets. Um. Then, on the other hand, you know, what I also think quite interesting is this notion from, let me say, or thinking it about literature in terms of empathy, and feeling, um, and how we can engage our students, let me say, in new types of agency, uh, and how they deal with literature. Because if I think back on, onto my own training, you know, I was actually trained under post-structuralism and deconstruction, for instance, you know, and, you know, empathy and feeling didn't play a great role, let me say, in our training. So I think, you know, this is also a way of how, let me say, we can, you know, approach literature in a very different manner. Um, and um, then also, you know, what I really like is the, the, the whole idea of how much can we reach our students in terms let me say of this digital environment you know and how that will affect uh, let me say also how we teach literature in the near future Uh, perhaps you know through podcasts or let me say through webinars you know but then we have to again also really think about let me say how we in a way then deal with let me say empathy feeling or let me say agency so uh, my, my, my my last, um, you, know, uh, you know, comment or let me say recommendation in terms of books is um, a very short one, you, know? um, you all have mentioned novels or let me say poetry, uh, um, I'm a, um, a short uh, story nerd yeah? and um, I like the form very much and I think, you know, particularly in, in, in this time, the condensed form of a short story can really, let me say, not only create what you call how we can feel empathy, but can really also, let me say, tell students a lot, let me say, in a very condensed dense in a very calculated manner. And so in this respect, uh, because also some of you have mentioned how important it is to make um, or to create paired readings between the past and the present. For instance, Herbert made this quite clearly, you know, by pointing out, for instance, the yellow fever uh, uh, epidemic stories. Let me see, of the late 1800s. Let me see, in comparison to what we encounter nowadays, you know, that um, uh, we perhaps may read uh, John Edgar Whiteman's American Histories. Um, this is a fascinating uh, collection of short stories, which begins with a letter to the president, um, and that is actually something that uh, can be wonderfully used that we see in such a empathetic approach towards literature. But also it contains stories such as the encounter between John Brown and Frederick Douglass. Um, The story is called JD and FD, for instance. It's a wonderful, let me see, uh, a, a fictional encounter, uh, imaginative encounter between two important figures, uh, uh, which of course you know haven't occurred. Let me say in history, you know, but the way he uh, uses it for a story is just great. And last but not least, a great story: Ned Turner confesses. Um, uh, a, a story that tells the the story. Let me say the last moment, you know, of Ned Turner's, let me say, death from, let me see, Ned Turner's point of view. Uh, and these are, let me see, great stories that can be wonderfully used, I guess, let me see, in, let me see, yeah, these very difficult times. Um, and it will tell us a lot about, let me see, the function of storytelling. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Oliver. Um, Evie? Uh, yes, wow. Um,
6: I, my mind is very much buzzing after uh, this this conversation. Um, I'll say a couple of things. Uh, one is, you know, I'm thinking back to uh, Karen's very emotional uh, connection to her students um, and my own longing to return to that in person uh, energy circulation that characterizes teaching for me. Um, and at the same time, taking Hubert's point about, you know, how will that in-person experience be different, um, for the short term, for the long term. what we don't know about that. Um, and what that, what that has got me thinking about that I want to maybe sort of leave, um, everyone else with is, um, is the question, you know, kind of what needs to stay changed? Um, they're the things that I kind of am dreading, um, Uh, that they they won't go back to the way it was before. But um, I'm actually very much hoping that, you know, sort of meeting students with grace um, will stay changed. And um, we haven't talked about graduate education, but the um, sort of uh, drifting away of GREs. Who knew that we could do without them? kind of hoping that that might stay changed and that that we can think about, you know, uh, as much as I personally feel nostalgic, I I also want to really think about the the possibilities of this uncertainty. Um, So I'm also thinking about everyone's great uh, recommendations for texts. Um, And there are a few things I want to sort of throw out. Uh, I'm happy always to have people celebrate poetry and it's, uh, you know, it's fabulousness and timeliness and all of that um, at any point. Um, One sort of uh, text that I want to suggest uh, that is um, discussed in the anthology that I recommended or that I taught from, certainly, and do recommend one poetry collection that I that I wanna toss out is uh, Patricia Smith's Incendiary Art. Um, you know, and it occurs to me, I mean, well, this is gonna sound self-serving. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2018. Um, and in the same year, my own poetry collection, semi-automatic was, uh, was uh, the other finalist. And I say that just to draw attention to the, the kind of um, the way that, that even in that sort of, sort of space, uh, that doesn't usually tend to celebrate, books that are strongly about politics and, um, and sort of foregrounding issues of uh, systemic violence and um, Black Lives Matter and so forth, even two years ago, you could see that people were beginning to, to think about these things in, um, in ways that are the foundation for this moment. So, um, so I, I'll, I'll throw that out there. Uh, Patricia Smith's incendiary art. Um, and then a book that I taught in another, the other course I was teaching this spring, um, which was on experimental black women's writing, uh, proved, uh, again, to be timely in ways that I hadn't anticipated when I put together the syllabus. And that is Alexis Pauline Gums's M Archive, After the End of the World. It's prose poetry slash um, Black feminist theory slash um, science fiction, speculative fiction, I think would actually be more the term, although the periodic table features uh, very prominently in this book. And uh, I enjoyed, and my students really also enjoyed um, the extent, the, the sort of the brilliant extent of her imagination. Um, and I, w- I have been going to uh, suggest the Station Eleven novel that, um, uh, oh gosh, yeah, that Leslie um, suggested earlier. But I think what I will, end with is, in fact, uh, the recommendation of a nonfiction book, um, Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong, uh, because I have, I feel like we've talked a lot about um, African American literature in this conversation, um, not surprisingly, given uh, the moment, but I have been so mindful and so, you know, frankly horrified by the way that um, anti-Asian American, anti-Asian sentiment has um, been stirred up uh, around the coronavirus. And, you know, I think while Kathy Park Hong's book precedes that moment, it has within it um, so much of what we need to be thinking about to make sense of that horror and, um, and to maybe teach our students uh, what they need to be thinking about um, not to participate in perpetuating that, that kind of uh, sentiment. I'll just leave it at that. that, basically that racism, let's just say it. Um, so I'll stop there, thanks.
0: Thank you, Evie. Candace, would you like to wrap everything up for us and put a bow on it?
7: I don't think I can. Um, I I taught, um, Albert, you'll have to bleep this out or someone will. I taught Susan Laurie Park's fucking A this <laughs> quarter. It was pre-planned and it it addresses the carceral and, uh, and it's in some time that is a continued time that has gone on for a long time, but no specific place. Um, I would like to suggest, I already suggested some books when I was talking, but uh, my colleague Kay Young drew my attention to Pride and Prejudice again. And she drew my attention to the moment where Lizzie Bennett puts the letter in her pocket right after there's a semicolon and a but. And then she picks up the letter, not a scarlet letter, but just the letter from Darcy, and she reads it again and again. So Pride and Prejudice reads differently now. I had been spontaneously reading it for fun on my own because I'm a Jainite. And I'm one of the people who sneaks out of bed with a flashlight in the middle of the night and people wonder you know, where I might be going, but it's really that long affair with Jane Austen that's gone forward. So um, I wanted to suggest a a book from the past, Will Rogers, uh, Brother to a Dragonfly, because I think for people to read uh, about uh, a rural white Baptist preacher from Mississippi coming to civil rights and the way that Will Rogers says to, everyone, we're all born bastards. You're going to have to bleep me all the way through. Uh, this is, I, anyway, that's the, I think that those sorts of things uh, keep the focus, uh, keep the focus so that, that people can find the edge and do something with it in terms of empathy. My students are crying. They're, try, they're at home, trapped with their parents. And they did not know that their parents from all different backgrounds would be as property oriented or as racist as the students say they are. And they're trying to work with them. That's always an intergenerational thing. But what COVID means and sheltering in place is that place is not always a shelter. And that Thanksgiving goes on year round. (laughs) And there are a lot of meals. To deal with, uh, if if one's fortunate enough to have food and shelter, and and this is a state of privilege, I'm talking about food and shelter. Um, so that I I recommend the Terrence Hayes, um, and also if you would like to read some unapologetic love, uh, Natalie Diaz's postcolonial love poem is is good. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be post-anything. Uh, it, it allows bodies to be, and they are. They are. I, I appreciate everyone so much. Alfred ties up all of the bows. I'm going, I, he, I've taken notes. I've learned from you all, and I'm grateful. I'm just grateful. I'm Zoom grateful, and I made up a new word. It has a dash in it. Are you ready for it? Zoom fried. <laughs> Zoom fried. It's when your face gets fried by its own image, particularly for people who haven't looked in the mirror for 25 years. <laughs> this is a shocking experience uh, of, of being reflected back in some kind of way. So, Alfred, tie the bow. I look, I'm looking at you.
0: I'm ready.
7: <laughs> okay.
0: I want to thank all of you for what's been a fascinating uh, event, which I expected, but also a kind of heartwarming one. And we've noted the problems, we've noted the issue, but uh, the word I've heard more than I've ever heard in a department meeting or academic gathering is the word empathy. And that's maybe the good word to deal with our times. So I think that's how we'll tie the bow and wrap things up. Thank you all.